if you look at Coco, she never accepted what people told her she was supposed to be. And neither did Antoinette. At the convent, they were told, you know, you'd be lucky to be a seamstress or you'd be lucky to be the wife of a farmer. You know, the nuns had a place that they expected them to be, but they didn't listen to that. And then in society, you know, society told them, you know, you don't belong up here, you belong down there. You know, you, you can't be anything than what you were born into. You know, she didn't listen to that. She did what she wanted to do. She always listened to herself and believed in herself and didn't accept what the world told her she had to be. Hi, I'm Sylvia Beckerman. Join me today as I talk to an extraordinary woman who is changing the world by making a difference in her life and the lives of those around her. Hi, I'm Judith Little, the author of The Chanel Sisters, and this is Sylvia and me. Judith, thank you so much. It's so nice to meet you. Um, we had a little chat right before we started. And The Chanel Sisters, I know that I, in particular, uh, am a huge fan of history and fashion and how it so plays into women and women's roles um, during time. And you chose Coco Chanel. And the name of the book is The Chanel Sisters, not the, but Chanel Sisters. Uh, I don't know that anyone really knows some of the history of Coco Chanel and the fact that, yes, she had two sisters. So first I'd like to ask you, um, why uh, Chanel, why Coco Chanel? I never uh, really had a particular um, affinity for Coco Chanel other than she was an interesting historic person. And I like to read biographies. And one day I just thought I'm gonna read about Coco Chanel and you know see what she's all about. And I had assumed like many other people might that she was born into wealth and privilege and in Paris uh, with you know basically a strand of pearls around her neck from day one. And so when I started reading the biography, I was really shocked to learn that the exact opposite is true and that she was born in a poor house to an unwed mother and came from really the poorest of the poor of families. They were vagabonds, didn't even really have a home of their own. And that's gotta be so hard for so many uh, to even fathom. I mean, I couldn't have fathomed that she came from uh, such a poor background because when you think of uh, Chanel, you think of Haute Couture, Paris, as you said, you know, one of the big um, old uh, fashion houses. So tell us a little bit about um, her upbringing, because I know that not only was she poor, she was born to an unwed mother, but she actually grew up uh, in a convent. She was an orphan. She did. Her parents married eventually. Her mother's family forced her father to marry the mother by, I think at that time in France, you could send a man to jail for not marrying the woman who had his children. And so they did get married, but still the father was never around. He was a traveling uh, peddler and went from town to town. And I think he was a ladies man. And uh, so Coco's mother had to fend for herself pretty much trying to feed the kids and 
that kind of thing. And she ended up dying when she was in her early 30s of poverty, basically, sickness, ill health, um, overwork. And so Coco's father took the girls and then dropped them off on the doorstep of a convent orphanage in the middle of nowhere, France. And they lived there as charity cases being raised by nuns for almost 10 years. And that had a huge influence on everything in her life, everything to come, including her aesthetic and the clothes that she uh, designed. And if she lied about it, she lied about her past until the day she died. She never ever admitted that she grew up in a convent orphanage, but in her clothing, there are little clues. She left clues about it everywhere if you look closely. Okay, so what I would like to get into now is um, your book goes from, uh, I believe it's 1897 through 1921. And it's not just that Coco Chanel, that she hid her past, that she came from a poor, totally poor upbringing, and that a lot of what she designed really did have hints of her background. But also within the society at that time, women were expected to go by certain rules. Women were expected to um, not just go by the rules. She was in a convent. Uh, you know, they, you're supposed to, again, you know, grow up, uh, be a certain way, get married, have a family, and do what your husband wants you to do. And that's not what she was looking for from, from the time she was, how old was she in, in 1897 when you started the book? Uh, like I started the book, I think she was about 12. 12. She, okay, that's- She was 11 when her mother died. Okay, so she was 12. And really what she was looking for, I think there were two things that you mentioned. One, um, that she was always waiting for her dad to come back. Um, and that was one of the things where she knew he wasn't, but she, she did. And the other was that really, if he came back, it would be freedom. He would get them out of there. And the story really is a story of love and three sisters looking for love and the freedom in three different ways. Mm -hmm. And you decided to take the book and narrate it by the middle sister, uh, Nanette, uh, I believe Antoinette, so Nanette was yes. she was called. Coco's name really was Gabrielle. Uh -huh. And uh, I'd like you to tell us why she was called Coco. But what I'm getting at is the fact that the book really was the love between these three sisters and each one of them wanting love in a different way. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was all um, really structured somehow around what women were supposed to do and who they were supposed to be. So tell us something about how um, Coco wound up, uh, what, was the, what were they doing? What was their task at the convent? The convent, the nun's job was to prepare orphans and children from poor backgrounds uh, to take care of themselves when they left the convent. So they taught them 
uh, manual skills that would help them get a husband or help them get a job. And so Coco, who was Gabrielle, like you said at the time, she was taught, well, they were all taught sewing. And so that's where she initially learned to sew. Um, although she said she hated it and she didn't want to have anything to do with sewing. She was a late bloomer, actually. You know, a lot of people think she started out to be in fashion and uh, it was all just so easy, which is how success looks. But, you know, behind the success, it's not really quite that way. But, but so once they got out of the convent, they had no one, you know, they had no money. They had very little family. What family they did have had no money. And society at the time for a woman to rise up out of poverty, there were really only two ways besides you know, getting married to someone of her social economic level. One was to become a mistress of a wealthy man and sort of collect the pearls and jewels as a 401k plan for later. And another was uh, to try to become a star of the stage and be able to take care of yourself that way the three girls were different. Coco had a great drive to be free and to be not tied down and not, especially not to have to depend on someone else to take care of her. She saw firsthand what happened with her mother and that her mother depended in a way on her father and he was never there. And so she saw that depending on someone else could literally kill you. And so I think she had this great aversion to ever being dependent on a man, in fact, you know, she never married and she was not, she was willing to do it outside of what was acceptable at the time. Antoinette, her younger sister in the novel is more intent on trying to be accepted as part of society. And I think she felt that she had never been accepted by her father and when you live in a convent for all those years, I think you tend to feel invisible too, and you want to be seen. And I think for Antoinette, she saw marriage as a way to being acknowledged and being seen and uh, being loved. And then Julia Barrett, the older sister, needed more of a physical kind of love. And this was all, you know, the three of them to deal with the whole left by their father who left them and they did, they never saw him again. So one of the things that um, they do, you said she couldn't stand sewing um, and it all did come naturally. They learned how to do hats, uh, but one of the things that, and, and uh, her, her sister Nanette was exceptionally good at being able to make a hat structured and, and tear it apart and put it back together. Um, and where Coco came in was actually minimizing. Uh, and, and you could see that in her designs going from the very beginning in fashion to most of the designs now, where, uh, you know, the whole thing, uh, you take one out, you know, you, you take a look and you take something off. And for that, it was either feathers or ribbons. And, and so she was totally ahead of her time. And again, it sounds like what she was making was also freedom. So you mentioned that there were two ways that a woman could become acceptable or maybe um, spiral up from being uh, poor and an orphan and, and maybe get some respect. 
aside from being uh, married, and that was to become uh, a mistress and get your 401k that way or <laughs> on stage. And in the book, you have the, your research uh, showed that she did both. She, she actually became a mistress and she tried getting on stage, which evidently she really did not have a lot of talent for. She did. Uh, so the first thing she wanted to do was be on stage. And she just, she really wanted that financial freedom uh, to her money was freedom. And so that was what she was trying to earn. And she started singing in a little cafe in Moulin, France, which is a small town. And uh, there were, there was a garrison there. And so there were soldiers and this was where they would come. And she had a signature song that was called Coco at the Trocadero about a little lost dog. And so she would get up on stage and sing her song about Coco and do her, you know, she would have little dance moves and it became kind of a thing. And all the soldiers would pound on the table and shout for her yelling Coco, Coco. And then it became, that's how she got her nickname, it stuck. And she went from Mulan to try her luck in a bigger city, Vichy, France, which was where, you know, the waters were and the wealthy would come to take the waters uh, and they had more of a nightlife there. And so she tried again and then ended up not having any success. And so with no place else to go, she agreed to be taken in by a man who was actually a friend, um, but a friend with benefits, I guess you could say in a modern way is what he became. He was wealthy, owned a horse farm outside of Paris. And so she went and lived with him for several years as part of this sort of chateau society where, you know, her lover and then his married and unmarried friends would come with their mistresses and they would all live kind of a decadent lifestyle. But after a while, uh, even that, you know, she got back to her, I'm, I can't depend on someone else sort of mindset. And she realized, you know, when you're a mistress at some point, they're going to get tired of you. And I think she was also bored after a while as well. And that was when she started making hats. Well, she had made them for herself. You know, she really didn't have any money and they didn't live in a big city. So she started making hats for herself that were simple um, and that flattered her. And then some of the other ladies who had come to the chateau uh, liked her hats and asked if she would make them or she would make the hats for them. And that was how she started out kind of accidentally making these hats just for friends. And then she went to her sister who was actually looking for love in a different way. She did not want to be a mistress. She, um, but she also did not want to, uh, have to marry someone. In fact, there was someone in your book, Nanette did have someone who she could have married. He was the, uh, the son of a grocer, but she didn't want that life because for women back then, uh, when you married, you did whatever your husband um, wanted you to do. And if they had a business, you worked in that business. And she saw her life, uh, she, she, the only thing she could picture was if she married this young man, uh, yes, he would support her, but at the same time, she would have to give up all of her independence and it would be a day-to-day -day drudgery, the same thing. So 
Coco came to her. And um, as you said in the book, uh, they were actually backed by one of Coco's uh, guy friends. Yeah. And what is amazing, I love how you tell the story about uh, the women who actually come into the shop and buy the hats are, um, are the same women who really don't want to accept Coco and her daughter and her sister because they're not on the same level because she was a mistress. Uh, they don't know she was poor, but they don't think of her as being in the same class. Tell no. us about the, you know, how Coco felt about that. It's interesting because when I started researching the novel, there's not a lot of information, not nearly as much information known about Antoinette as there is about Coco. And so I started looking at old French newspapers from the time period. The novel ends in 1921. So it ends just after World War I. Uh, and that is right when Coco becomes famous. So most of the novel, Coco is not famous. She's not particularly well known. And I didn't really think about that. So when I went to look at the newspapers using kind of the mindset of today, I was surprised to not find anything about them at all. And, you know, there was no society mention of, you know, Coco Chanel was at this event at all. Then I finally realized that that's because they weren't part of society. They were tradeswomen and they would not be ever be, you know, included in the newspaper in that way. And so that kind of gave me a sense of you know, trying to get out of today and thinking, what's well, Coco Chanel? And um, back then when, you know, she was really just a worker. And at that time, dressmakers were not part of society or um, invited to the parties. And it was a long time, even in the 1920s when she was famous for a little while um, before that, she still wasn't invited to parties. And there was this one man in Paris, Etienne Beaumont, who had the wildest parties. And, uh, he didn't invite her at first. And then later on, she ended up employing him as part of her business. So in the end, she always seemed to kind of get her revenge on everybody. Well, the funny part to me is, um, as you said, there wasn't much about her sister, Nanette. Um, Coco never wanted to deal with customers. And uh, so she was always in the back and her sister who had at first questioned who would buy her hats. And Coco said, you know, because of the gossip, all these very wealthy upper-class women would want to come in, you know, the gossip, gossip, gossip to find out. And then uh, Nanette, her sister was always able to sell a hat because she was a true salesperson. She was a people person. So these women wound up, they, they were basically the publicity for the start, which I find fascinating because they wouldn't invite her in, um, yet they were walking around with at first her hats and then her clothing. Right. And one of the things that um, you, uh, you mentioned in the book and, and it's, it's in the novel and it's throughout uh, as she started with the hats and then going into uh, clothing was the war and the times change and she was able to adapt to those changing times. Can you go into that a little? Sure, it was 
almost like a perfect storm in a way for Coco because part of, again, I think her freedom was such a big thing for her and that translated even into clothing. And the clothing at the time was the corset and layers and layers of skirts and uh, lots of frills and flounces. And if you've ever seen those pictures on Pinterest and other places where women are wearing just these enormous hats, uh, that was the style. And, you know, it was hard for women to move around. They had hat pins sticking in their head. A lot of them couldn't even get dressed themselves. You know, they would need something to help. Um, and Coco hated that. She could not stand that. She wanted to be able to move. She wanted to um, be a participant in life and not just a pretty object to be looked upon. And also she didn't have the money to have that kind, those kinds of clothing. And when she lived with her lover, she borrowed his clothes all the time and even had a riding habit made out of, you know, she wore men's pants to ride in. And she realized how comfortable it was. I think kind of almost like COVID where we're all wearing our <laughs> clothes. I'm not sure how I'm gonna go back to a regular clothing, but uh, you know, she realized, wow, men can move. She even put pockets on clothing for women later. And you know, women never had pockets. So why did men have pockets and women didn't have pockets? Like these were the kinds of things that she would ask herself and put on her clothing. And then World War I came along uh, around the same time when she had started selling her hats and she made clothing for herself again, not to sell, but for herself that was very comfortable and that she would wear in the resort town to walk, walk around. And uh, once World War I broke out, for instance, in DeVille, a lot of the society ladies wanted to volunteer at a hospital. And the doctor there said, you know, you can't wear what you have on, you cannot wear that. Like that's a hazard, you know, all the uh, fancy things they had on and uh, he said, you can't wear that. And here he went to a cupboard and pulled out some old nurses uniforms and said, if you want to volunteer here, you have to wear these. And they were appalled and disgusted. And why, how could we wear something as plain and as that? And so they took them to Coco and she redid them and uh, in her way and made them elegant and yet still functional. And that, her, that carried over for the rest of the war. Women started turning to her clothing because in World War I, women became more functional. They uh, became, you know, took over some of the jobs that men had had before they went to war and they were no longer uh, just decorative. And she uh, used some of the fabrics uh, because there wasn't a lot around, but she wound up using fabrics that these women had no idea um, they couldn't fathom themselves ever uh, wearing uh, fabrics like jersey. They could not imagine being dressed in that. And yet, you know, the joke was on, on, on uh, them because they bought all her clothes and they just loved the freedom of her clothes. They were able to move. Yeah, that jersey, you know, was what had been used to make men's underwear. <laughs> took it and made it into dresses and charged a whole bunch of money for it. And um, that was what all the society ladies were wearing. And they were wearing rabbit fur instead of chinchilla because, you know, you during the war, the expensive furs were impossible to get and they didn't want to wear last year's fur. So uh, Coco started 
making things out of rabbit fur and she had all the society ladies wearing what you know really the peasants would normally wear and again charging a lot of money for it so tell me um coco and 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 annette uh especially coco wanted to be independent what differences do you see between independence back then for a woman and uh, women being independent in today's uh, day and age? I think today it's just an assumption that we can be independent. If we want to back then, it wasn't something that um, a lot of women typically did. I think that Antoinette didn't necessarily want to be independent, but that was uh, what ended up happening because of the success of Coco's business. I think she still wanted the acknowledgement of uh, marriage, but then once they were independent, it was impossible for them to go back and to be dependent on someone. You know, once I think you are running your own business and you can spend your own money however you want, why would you want to not be able to do that? anymore. But, you know, one interesting story is when she first started out and she got her first bank loan, and this is in the book, and it really is, you know, a true story. She was backed by her lover at the time, Boy Capel, and she started uh, just buying whatever she wanted. And she told him one day they were going to dinner and she said, you know, it's so easy to make money. I had no idea how easy it was to do this. And then he kind of laughed at her and said, well, you know, that's my money. Like that's, I've guaranteed your business. And every time you ask the bank for money, that's my money. And she was so mad. She threw her purse at him and stormed back home. And at that moment really changed her life. And from that moment on, she took control of the finances and she made sure, cause she really was naive before that. She didn't understand how it all worked. Cause you know, I don't know that she could have gotten a loan by herself from the bank. She had to go through him uh, but from then on, you know, she vowed to repay him. And eventually she did pay him back everything that she had borrowed from him to start her business. And as you mentioned in the book, uh, Coco was naive about it. And she turned to her sister to really take care of the business part of it. And they learned the hard way about the fact that um, it's not that easy to, to make money. Um, you work hard at it, not that they weren't working hard, um, but there's a whole business side to it, which is really neat uh, because so many women do, nowadays they'll go into business with an idea and not, not even think about the business side of it. And I think of course we're getting a lot smarter um, where, where that comes in. But again, her wanting freedom and independence pushed her to never have to go to somebody uh, again and really just rely on her wits. And even during the war when nothing was really selling, um, they managed to, as you said, the nurses' uniforms and, and so on. So they were able to adapt to the times, which is, probably one of the biggest assets, uh, that and her wanting freedom and it shows in her clothes for being so successful. So what was one of the most amazing things you found out about uh, either Coco or her sister? 
Oh, gosh, there were so many amazing things. I mean, just the fact that her sister played an important role in the business, which has never been acknowledged before. No one has ever talked about Antoinette. No book has ever been written from her point of view. And Coco's biographers have pretty much ignored her. But the research that I did showed that she really played a big part in helping her sister and was very much a trailblazer uh, along the lines of Coco. You know, she was a modern woman. And I think one of the other things, um, just Coco, you know, I didn't go into it thinking I was going to understand everything, the reason Coco did everything that she did, but as I got into it and was able to piece together her past and realized that really so much had to do with the abandonment by her father so much later in her life um, was from that convent. I mean, even the idea of living there for all those years, watching a women-owned business, so to speak, you know, that with the mother abbess as a CEO and the aesthetic of the black and white that the nuns wore that is so prominent in her clothing and her chain link belts that look literally exactly like the rosary belts that the nuns wore around their waist. And especially then the Chanel logo, the interlocking C's that we all know about that uh, you know, I've always just thought of as this symbol of luxury and, oh, there's one of those expensive Chanel bags, uh, that kind of thing. You know, that logo is actually in the stained glass windows of the convent orphanage. They have interlocking C's in those windows and Coco's biographers have gone back to that and said, you know, that is part of the origin of her actual logo. So, when I said earlier that her clues to her convent past, you know, that she left them everywhere, she really did. And even just her sensibility, you know, just taking all the unnecessary things off of clothes so that women could move around is kind of a nun's no-nonsense, you know, way of living. And it shows. Um, who knows if she would have been able to be as successful had she not gone through the upbringing that she did. Uh, because that freedom and that, that sensibility uh, just shows through everything she did. And uh, as I just said, I'll repeat myself, who knows if, if, if she didn't have that in her life, if it would have pushed her to be as creative, because it really is creative, to be so simplistic in so many areas of, of what she's done. Um, the other thing I wanted to, to ask, are you done with Coco or is there more to come? I am not done with Coco. Uh, there is more, I'm working on a third novel that she, again, she's not, it's not in her voice. It's in the voice of another woman who was her best friend, which I think, you know, I had never thought of Coco as having a sister. And I also never really thought of her as having a best friend. I think she has this image of not really being a girl's girl kind of person and sort of being alone for the most part. But she did have a very close friend who was even more famous than Coco was at the beginning and very well known in Paris. And now, and sort of like Antoinette, nobody really knows who she is and uh, no one has heard of her, but they uh, went through a lot together and they were always there supporting each other. And so it's, a, it's an interesting story. It's Paris in the 1920s and 1930s. Well, again, we can put it into today's terms where 
women are learning that they, they should and we need the support of other women. That if we stick together, we're more successful than trying to, um, you know, the, the paranoia that so many women have uh, in keeping arm's length to, you know, to others. Uh, I think it's a fantastic story. And there's so much similarity to where we are today uh, and, and the wanting of independence. And it's funny that you mentioned, you know, you didn't think she'd had she uh, gone in on her own to get a, a loan. Uh, I've talked about this many times. It wasn't until the 70s that a woman was allowed to get any credit without having a man co-sign. Yeah, I mean, it was a man's world. And, uh, you know, if the focus in their younger years on men and, you know, wanting to get married or, you know, the uh, vision of a, a handsome prince, which when they were younger, they read all these romantic novels, you know, the handsome prince coming in and saving them. You know, it was a man's world back then, a lot more than it may be today. And the way out of their poverty in their minds had to be through a man. They didn't have any role models for how to do it other than the famous mistresses and famous actresses of the day. So if you had one message that you wanted to leave, um, especially before your next novel comes out, what would the message uh, be? Uh, because you, you delved into the, um, these two women, the older sister um, had her own, really didn't fit into uh, what Coco and Nanette did. What, message could you give uh, women who are struggling, especially in, in these times? What would your message be? I think the message I would um, like to give is, if you look at Coco, she never accepted what people told her she was supposed to be, and neither did Antoinette. At the convent, they were told, you know, you'd be lucky to be a seamstress, or you'd be lucky to be the wife of a farmer. You know, the nuns had a place that they expected them to be, but they didn't listen to that. And then in society, you know, society told them, you know, you don't belong up here, you belong down there. You know, you, you can't be anything than what you were born into. And I think even now we, you know, we do that all the time, you know, well, I can't do that, you know? And even if you're older, you're like, well, I'm too old to start something, <laughs> or, you know, or we just don't do that. And people my age don't do that, or none of my friends do that. But if it's, she didn't listen to that. She did what she wanted to do. I mean, she also didn't have anything to lose. You know, she, I think that's what holds a lot of us back is that she had nothing, you know, she didn't really have any family to embarrass. She had no, no money to risk. Um, but she always listened to herself and, you know, believed in herself and didn't accept what the world told her she had to be. I think that's great. Judith, thank you so much for joining me today. Um, where can people find out more about you? I'm, I have a webpage, which is judithlittle.com and Judith has an E on the end. So that's a little confusing, but uh, it's judithlittle.com and I'm on Facebook and I'm on Instagram. And on Instagram, I, at Judith Little, I do post uh, from time to time some old historic little tidbits about the 
time and on Facebook of uh, Coco and Antoinette. Uh, so if you're interested in that, that's a good place to find some more information. And thank okay. you for having me. Again, thank you so much. And I am looking forward to the next chapter. Thank you, me too. Thank you for joining me today. If you liked what you heard, please share it with another person you think would be interested. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. Join me next week when I talk to another extraordinary, inspiring woman. Today's podcast is sponsored by Upper Deck, the national full-service virtual gym that has reinvented the at-home workout experience. Upper Deck has more than 30 strength and cardio classes a week. Named Best Fitness Club in the Gold Coast for 2020, Upper Deck brings the gym to you with live coaching and motivation. Upper Deck's unique classes are interactive. They have two coaches, one leading your workout and one keeping her eyes on you, providing feedback and encouragement in real time. For a free week of unlimited virtual classes with no strings attached, email info at upperdeckfitness.com and let Upper Deck know you're a Sylvia and me listener. This has been a Life of Prey production.